the larger your network, the larger the group of people that you know and who are willing to help you when you help them, the higher the probabilities are that something's going to come up that's good for you. From sunny California, welcome to the Rushi Shah podcast, a show about visionaries from various industries who share their inspiring stories and give advice to people wanting to make an impact on the world. As always, I'm your host, Rushi, like sushi with an R. And on today's episode, we have an awesome conversation with Glenn Fogel. Glenn is the CEO and president of Booking Holdings and also the CEO of Booking.com. Booking Holding is the world's leading provider of online travel services. They serve customers in more than 220 countries through famous brands such as Booking, Priceline, Agoda, Rental Cars, Kayak, and Open Table. In 2021, they had over $76 billion in gross travel bookings and over 590 million room nights were booked. Glenn has had an extraordinary career. From starting as an investment banker specializing in the air transportation industry to now leading the world's top travel company, especially during a once in a lifetime pandemic. We talk about the impact of the pandemic, overcoming a big health scare, the importance of traveling, and what the future might look like in a decade. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School and earned a Bachelor of Science in Economics from the University of Pennsylvania. Glenn was also a member of the New York State Bar. I learned a lot from this episode, and I know you will find it insightful just as much as I did. Hope you enjoy. All right, we have a super, super delightful guest here on the show. We have the legendary Glenn Fogel, who is the CEO of Booking Holdings, a legendary travel group. Glenn, we are absolutely delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for attending. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's um, something I've been looking forward to doing. All right, so there's so much to discuss. In the past two years, life has been an absolute havoc across the world with lives changing left and right. I want to get into kind of how you managed, how your personal life has been over the course of the past two years, leading a 20,000 uh, person group. Lots been going on. Would love to kind of dive into your personal journey here, but kind of how have you been holding up the last two years how has life been like for glenn yeah so um interesting so you start off twenty thousand employees which is correct but that's not where it was two and a half years ago in fact we were twenty seven thousand. so we had to go through a very hard uh consolidation of our resources which means unfortunately sadly having to tell people who had done nothing wrong who had been good workers, who were doing all the things that we'd asked them to do and to tell them that, I'm sorry, but we don't have a job for you anymore because of this horrific pandemic. And that is really hard and you think about it. So that's the first thing right off the bat. And of course, concern about people's personal safety, you're thinking about your employees, you're thinking about your customers and you're thinking about your family. I don't know if you know this or not, but my family, we all got COVID very, very early March of 2020. And there was a lot of unknowns about it at that time and what was going to happen or not. And when we first tested positive, the concern, you know, we we read all the high, uh, the the headlines of people potentially dying. And um, while none of us are old and none of us are 
um, some sort of immunocompromise or anything like that, you still didn't know at that time. So it's been a difficult time for everybody. Fortunately, I have been very fortunate through most of my life. And I have, um, I, I was able to get through it much better than so many other, almost everybody else. I mean, I didn't have to have nearly the concerns that so many other people had. And I'm thankful for the luck that I've had. Wow. I mean, I can only imagine just leading your personal life and leading the life of so many thousands of employees, like you mentioned, must have been a lot stressful for you. But it's almost, you've also positioned, when I look at your experience throughout, and I'm super excited to get into to the point you are today, bookings is making a roaring comeback with, you know, stock prices coming back up. Right now it's tumultuous, but with travel coming right back up, it seems like you're picking up uh, the trail as if it never left off. What was, you know, what was Glenn like growing up? You know, let's kind of build the story here. What was Glenn like growing up? That's not something I've found readily available on the internet. You know, it's interesting, of course, what somebody believes they were like when they're growing up versus what other people who are with you when you're growing up and may ask family members or friends or teachers. And I'll bet it's a very, very different belief on what you think you were versus what other people think you were. So I got to be careful here and, um, and say, look, I, I grew up in a... Um, suburb of a major city, New York City. So I grew up, uh, it's called Porchester, New York. But it was a little part of this village called Porchester. It was actually a different part that had a great school system, great public school system, where most of the people, many of the people who lived there were first generation Americans. And their parents had immigrated, so common. Um, these parents were generally either business people or professionals, lawyers, doctors, you know, a lot of uh, upwardly mobile people who had one thing that was common throughout this area, which was belief in education. So it was an extremely competitive school system, and I was very fortunate to have fantastic teachers. And I was, um, you know, I had a good childhood. I was growing up in a place that was kind of what you read about um, what America is like with people who are small town, enjoying things and having fun and, and going ahead. And, and the basic thing was optimism. This is the 60s and early 70s. So maybe the whole country wasn't like that, but this little part of it was like that. And that was it. Now, that was my growing up as a young person. Unfortunately, so I was doing very well in school and I was looking forward to going to university or college, depending on who's listening to this, of course. Um, and I was 17. I was a junior in high school and I had a, a horrible, uh, I'll call it illness issue. I had a stroke, a major stroke, paralyzed me on my right side, destroyed almost all of my language capabilities. I couldn't speak. I couldn't read, I couldn't write. So I'd gone from a very accomplished student to somebody who couldn't function at all almost. And that was difficult. Fortunately, recovered, come out okay, but that certainly was a very formative experience for me. Wow. I don't think a lot of people know that. I really appreciate you sharing kind of deep inside details. And what Health was an issue. You growing up, you went to UPenn, and then you went on to 
um, Harvard to study law. What was what kind of caught your curiosity at a young age? Was it adventure? Were you always kind of traveling throughout? What did that look like? So I went to uh, Penn. I went as part of. The, I was at the Wharton School, which is business, uh, as an undergraduate, and I graduated in three and a half years. Save save my. My, my parents some money and, and things and when I get out into the world my first job was in IT I was a coder so nothing to do with finance and such so it's kind of like how did that end up I'm not even sure myself sometimes and I did that for two years and I realized relatively early that yeah it's interesting but I'm not very good at this maybe I should do something else and Many of my classmates from Warren were all, they'd all taken jobs in investment banks as analysts there, and they're all doing really well, and it's, that's the sexy thing in the early 80s, and I'm here in the, you know, coding in the back office of, of a bank, Morgan Stanley, and I think, I want to be like what those guys are doing again, but now having not gone their route in the first place, now I have to make a change, and to do that is to get another degree. So I had the degree in finance already from Warren. So the idea that I'm going to spend my own money to go to business school to get an MBA did not make a lot of sense to me. And Harvard let me in into law school. So I said, hmm, I probably should do that. Why not? Because then I can get the job I want. And I, so I came out and I started working at uh, an investment bank called Kidder Peabody. And I was in the M&A department but we were also doing corporate, uh, uh, corporate finance areas. So in our area, our specialty was travel, really. It was the air transportation industry. So I learned a lot about the air business through this. And it was really exciting, kind of sexy uh, part of, uh, of industry. Everybody wants to deal with the airlines because you know, something's always happening. You're merging, <laughs> you're, you're going through bankruptcy. In terms of business, fascinating stuff. And I really liked it, and that's how I did it. So it was a good time until, unfortunately, Kidder Peabody, unfortunately, uh, had some problems. And uh, it was owned by General Electric. And at some point, Jack Welsh, who was the CEO at the time, got sick of Kidder Peabody and sold it to Payne Weber. And in that merger, they fired all the bankers. So I was out of a job. And again, it's something that you learn about when you didn't do anything wrong. I thought I did a good, I thought I was a good worker. I thought I, did, I got good reviews. But of course, I had nothing to deal with this merger. And you're told, thank you for your service. Uh, here's a box. Please pick up your things and please leave today. Wow. And was that hard on you? To... Oh, it's horrific. Losing a job is horrific. It's horrible. And whether it's because you... You know, weren't a good worker, or you were a fine worker. Either way, it's uh, it doesn't matter. It's horrific. And there's some some things you'll read in some psychology um, things. You'll read that in terms of rating what are the most emotionally disturbing to a person, and things like divorce or loss of a child, loss of a parent, losing a job. Well, losing a job really surprisingly is way up there. I mean, it's like, you know, top three in almost anything for, it's way up there because it affects everything about who you are, what you are. And um, having been through that and knowing how that can be, it, it certainly when you're, um, you know, thinking about decisions you're going to make and how they're going to affect people, it's, it's good to actually uh, walk the walk. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible that you've been on both sides of the table now. 
you know, you, you refer back to the 80s, you know, 80s definitely was an interesting time. Something I want to talk about and move forward is, you know, the computer was named, I think, the Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Yep. You as a coder is quite fascinating to me. Definitely want some questions on that. Cold War was coming to an end, and the Chernobyl reactor just exploded. Talk to me about the times and how you were thinking as a young individual looking to get into you know, industry all across the board. You mentioned going from... Yeah, you wanted to do what the cool, sexy thing was. How were you able to traverse? Was it same as it is today with young individuals trying to pick careers? Like, what were your factors where you were looking at? So I was basically um, driven for all the wrong reasons at the time. And it's it's people tell you things about you should go into areas that you find interesting for you know things. The reason you want to go on. Um, should not be because what you're going to get paid uh, is your first job. That should not be the decision. Yet, as I mentioned, going to be a coder at Morgan Stanley, certainly one of the factors that was really interesting to me was the pay because it was really high and it, it showed you very clearly how much you could make in a couple of years if you just kept there for a while and did well. And, what, and I was like, wow, that's incredible what that was. And, um, and again, you asked my background, so I grew up, uh, my parents were uh, children of uh, the Great Depression in the U.S. My mother as a child, had, they had lost their house, so my mother, as a, as a, when she got to be an adult, always very conscious about money and the importance of having funds in case something goes wrong, so I was very, very financially aware of how things should be in the so that's something that's so that was absolutely the wrong reason. Shouldn't take a job because of what the starting uh, pay is going to be, but I did. Um, and over time, I've learned how much it's you can be successful in almost anything, actually. And, and I say financially. There are a lot of ways to be financially successful. A, B, financial success will not will absolutely not bring you happiness by itself. And everybody tells you that. Everybody says that. But it's hard to think, is that really true or not? I can tell you that is absolutely true. So when I was thinking about where to go, first step wrong, second step, you know, investment banking, that's where all the things are and all that. And then when I uh, was let go from Kidder, uh, I started, well, what do I really want? And I said, well, I kind of always wanted to be a writer. So I started writing a novel. And I actually did it. I wrote the novel. And then, of course, back then, it wasn't quite like today where there's a lot of self-publishing, et cetera. Back then, really to do anything, you really had to get a publishing house to take it on. And I, uh, a lot of people say that, well, I would have had a bestseller, but I didn't know anybody. Well, actually, I knew a lot of people. I met a lot of people at law school. And I knew a lot of people. So clearly that was not the problem because I knew everybody. And one thing in particular, I, uh, I was still single at the time. I went on a date, a uh, blind date set up by a friend. And she had formerly been an editor at Random House. So, you know, I said, oh, I definitely want to meet this woman. Uh, we went out. Now, she had changed to be a lawyer, but she still had a lot of contacts, et cetera. And uh, first date was, eh, not so great. Second day, it was okay, but I'm thinking, okay, how do I bring up? Could you do something about this manuscript and see if it gets old? And I still didn't. So the third date, I bring the manuscript with me in a box. And she sees the box, 
And it, it, she looks at it like I'm carrying dog poop because uh, she knows what's in it, right? And I tell her, look, could you just take a look, maybe, whatever, and maybe help, you know, if somebody may like it or not. And, and she finally says, yeah, okay. And I lead that day to his brunch. And I'm walking down Columbus Avenue in New York City. And I'm thinking, well, I just killed a whole bunch of trees spreading this thing out for absolutely no reason at all. What a waste that was. I get home. A few hours later, I get a call from her. And her name Amy. And she says, hey, this isn't that bad. Which to me was like the greatest. Not that bad. That's not great. I said, maybe, maybe I know something. I could do something. So long story short, she does what she can. Thing never gets sold, but we are now married over 20 years, two great kids. So in the end, writing that book was the best thing that ever could have happened. Wow. That story right there is worthy of a novel itself. How incredible. <laughs> I mean, in, in that sense, um, for you, the novel turned out to be a big hit, personally. No, are you kidding me? As they say in that MasterCard commercial, priceless. <laughs> that That's amazing. So... Let's get into travel. This is quite fascinating. I, people are going to be absolutely delighted hearing these stories. Is, you know, Mark Twain once famously said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. What made you, you know, get into the travel industry? You said, you know, you were focusing on travel at that time. Everybody was kind of focusing on kind of the travel industry and the top airplanes coming out of Boeing. There was an influx. Everything was getting more affordable. If you compare it to today's time, right, uh, everyone wants to be a TikToker or Instagram travel influencer. So I can understand today. But for you, what was it that found calling? And it seems like you know, Mark Twain so, lines up with. Yeah, it wasn't a calling, though. See, I ended up at Kidder. Kidder assigned me to the area that was dealing with travel, which dealing with the flight industry, really. And that's where it was. So I learned about it. I got good at it. Now, I love to travel. I've been traveling, you know, as a, uh, when I was a student at Penn Warden. Uh, I spent two summers, um, one summer studying in Spain, which was just opened my eyes. And then the next summer, a friend uh, and I, we went just traveling around Europe on a Europassity, Euro like everybody did in, uh, back then, and just seeing all, it was just fantastic. Now, look at the difference. Now, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people at school now, at college, feel, I have to get that internship in the summer, or else I won't get the next internship, and then I won't get the great job, and my life is already ruined because I didn't get that first internship. I didn't have any internships at all. I, I studied one summer, and then one summer I, uh, I was traveling around Europe and such. And then, um, the uh, of course, I say this to my kids, by the way, they say, yeah, but dad, it's different now. I, I, I get it. Um, and then, so then I go off, um, you know, work at, uh, in, as a coder, and then I you know, basically say no, and I go to law school, but before, I start in law school in September, that summer before where I'd already been let go from Kidder, I spent another summer spending uh, travel with the same friend, by the way, all over Europe, again, in different things. It's fantastic. You know, doing it at $2 a night, hostels, all sorts of really, really cheap travel. Everybody can travel. You just, you know, you may not live in a great place, may not, but you can do it. Um, and then I, um, my first summer at law school, every, not even, again, a lot of people say, oh, I got to get that great, great job after my first year of law school, or I won't get an interview or a great 
you know, permanent job after my third year because the second summer is so important. So I got to do the first summer to get the second summer to get the great job. And my first summer, I traveled around Asia for three months doing travel, just hanging out on the hippie uh, path, as they used to call it. Um, and it was just, I, I, this is 1985. I went to China. Oh, and I forgot to mention, while I was at Penn, I studied in the Soviet Union in 1981, 82. And I was all over. I was in, I was in what was in Burma, now Myanmar, changed the name. Uh, incredibly restricted uh, place. I just loved it, going around, seeing the world. And I still love it. And I do believe in that Mark Twain statement that travel is fatal to prejudice. It absolutely does expand the mind. It eliminates that narrow-mindedness. That's why we believe here at Booking Holdings, of which I'm all CEO of Booking.com, we believe so much so that what we're doing is something that is helping the world. And look, the world's in a horrible place right now. War, pandemic. Um, unfortunately, I really believe the chance for famine coming up in the fall because of this war in Europe. And I'll tell you, Travel is something that could help people come together and realize the foolishness of so many of these evils that people are doing against each other. And, and here's something that is interesting. So many people who ever had the, the luck of going into space, and I, I have not had that uh, luck, but I'll be uh, almost everybody does, they, they say looking at Earth from space, you look at it and you change, you realize how important it is that we do everything we can help make sure that we are together as one human species to help each other and make it better because we just had this one little home earth and if we don't it's not like there's another planet to go to tomorrow so i really believe what we're doing is good yeah i'm absolutely love that uh, I'm, I'm actually quite shocked and i love the the perspective you come from, because I feel so many young people would want to talk to you just because of your travels, let alone, of course, your business expertise there. What were, you know, you said, did you have any notable trips that you can share? Like, hey, you know, I had a rough situation here. Kind of what were your main key takeaways? You know, was language a barrier? You didn't have Google Translate back then. We didn't have so much data. So it must have been a lot harder then than it is now. Yeah, but it was also more interesting because it wasn't a Starbucks in every city. <laughs> I mean, it really made it, I believe it was more interesting because you really were exploring a different culture, a different place. Yes, of course, there are still many uh, cultures are still different. I'm not denying that at all. But there certainly is a merger of things. I mean, going to the Soviet Union in the early 80s really was different. And my Russian was non-existent pretty much. And going to China in 1985, very, very, very few, few Westerners were traveling to China at the time. And I remember with a guy, we were in this, we were on this, um, we were in uh, Myanmar together. We just, you know, met up uh, in Thailand, went off together. And um, he had, boy, it was like a cassette recorder. And we were up in the north of Burma. And uh, he was showing, uh, he was having this, and we're in this village, and the people were just so fascinated that they could hear their voice back. It was just, it was, it was a different world at the time. It really was interesting. And, you know, nowadays, 
I can call anybody from pretty much anywhere, which is nice, but it also, I think, changes the experience a little bit. Do you think, here's a fascinating question, do you think because the world has gotten so much easier to access, like you said, any corner of the world you could do, you know, FaceTime calls, that the world has gotten so close together that people have just drifted apart or it's just not there anymore? Where it's like everything's so readily available that you know the the value of that goes down. Do you do you agree to that? Hmm. Interesting question. I think there are always pluses and minuses to everything, and in technology, there's usually there are great benefits, and there are also things that end up being costly to society, and. I'll go with, I'm going to take your question and move a little bit to another thing. So let's take things that social, let's take, you know, social media. There's some really great things about social media in being able to connect more and being able to stay in contact with other people, friends, family, and being able to be informed more. But we all see the horrors of social media and how it is used destructively in our society and societies around the world. And the question is, how do you do it so that you, a new technology that comes out that is used for good and not evil? And this is not new for, when I say technology, any sort of invention. And of course, we have Nobel Prizes now that were funded by a man who created basically explosives. That's where that came from. That's where that funding came from. And I don't know if it's true or not, or it's just a story that is said that part of the reason for this was maybe a feeling of guilt over the creation of what was unfortunately something that it can be used for very good things, construction, mining, things that are good, and some things that are bad, killing people. And um, I think that's about any kind of change in technology. And it's just we as a society, we get to choose how we use these technologies. We come up with what the rules will be and how to do it. And I feel that we need to do more of that and more thinking about that to try and make sure when new technologies come out, they are used more for helping promote social good and not be used for, let's say, self-centered things that are actually destructive to the community. I love that. I really love that. So when we talk about community, let's dive into business now, which is I mean, just as exciting as your travel adventures, you joined Booking back in 2000. It's been mm-hmm. well over two decades uh, at the company now. You know, when you initially joined, what at the time, 2000s was the dot-com era, everything was blowing up. What made you choose Booking? What did you find unique about that and that you wanted to really lay your um, vision with? Sure. So, um, so... Kidder Peabody fell, you know, part was, was, was sold in 1995. And then I wrote the book, and that took time, and eventually, and my uh, eventual wife, my, my girlfriend at the time, and this is 1996, says, you know, this book author thing doesn't seem to be working out so well. Maybe you should get a job. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, maybe I should. And I'm um, thinking, well, what do I do now? Because the banking thing was a lot of travel, a lot of hours. 
And I think, what do I, what can I do that I get a job? But I don't have to travel as much at the time. So I can spend time with my girlfriend here and really develop the relationship. And I had a friend uh, from law school who was a senior person at Morgan Stanley Asset Management. And that's the manage, manage assets. And, and I, yeah, he knew me and he knew my girlfriend, Amy. And he's like, he says, ah, I know someone. We got a spot for a trader position. And I said, well, I've never traded anything. And he said, ah, you'll be fine. It'll be not hard at all. You'll be fine. And so having no experience, so I was given a very senior job trading in uh, Morgan Stanley S. Management. And that may explain a lot about, about how finance can go off the rails when you just start giving people with no experience jobs like that. But okay. So I took the job and I started in 1997. And it was another area where I did it for a while. I'm like, this is not fun. This isn't that great. I don't know. And that's when the internet really started to boom. So it's the late 90s, and it's uh, 1999, and I'm not really happy what I'm doing there, and it's not that much fun. And I think, well, let's see here. Now I know a little bit about technology, because I was a coder. I know a little bit about finance and stuff, because I was a banker and a trader, so I know those things. Uh, I know the travel business, because of where I was, and all that. So, you know, there's this company, Priceline.com, and it so came about, uh, my wife knew I was unhappy too, and she had a friend who was a uh, lawyer who was helping with real estate offices for Priceline. And he knew there was a job for corporate development there. So he had told my wife, my wife tells me, and I speak, and I get a job opportunity. So a couple things take out of this. Two really important things here, both jobs. The trader job and the corporate development job came because I knew people, because I had connections. And that, by far, is so important for anybody, is the larger your network, the larger the group of people that you know and who are willing to help you when you help them, the higher the probabilities are that something's going to come up that's good for you. Really, really critical. You know, the President Bill Clinton, who some people hope still remember, there was a thing, friends of Bill. Bill Clinton had some of the most giant network of friends from the time he was back in Arkansas. He started building it when he was in school. He further did it when he went off to Oxford on a Rhodes, I think it was Rhodes Scholar, I'm not sure, he was, but he's in Oxford. And he kept building it, building it. This is such a critical thing to do, develop relationships. So I did that. And that's why I ended up at what was then Priceline.com. I got the job and I told people in um, as soon as I waited until I got my bonus for two for $19.99, which is paid in February of 2020. So I left being the head trader, Maurice asked the manager for a guy named Barton Biggs at the last week of February to go to the internet company priceline.com. Thereby, thereby gotten there one week before the peak of the NASDAQ back then with the internet, thereby proving it was good I left being a trader because what I had done is I had just gone long internet. I had just, you know, basically bought long at the peak, top ticked the trade as they say. Uh, and then of course it's like, oh God, what have I done? Because a year later, Priceline, which had gone public in 1999, and within a couple days, it was worth $30 billion, which back then was real money. And when I joined, it had gone down a bit, maybe $15 billion by then. Within nine months, 
it was worth a couple hundred million. So I'd gone from this great job in terms of financial, financial, value, financial benefits to a company that many people, including my mother at the time, thought had gone bankrupt. So it worked out in the end. Sometimes it doesn't. I got lucky. That is quite a, a ride, to say the least. Yeah. When your advice here, this podcast is really focused on, on the younger uh, folks like myself trying to just traverse through the world, you know, loving and understanding all the things we're taught in school and life as we grow up and getting into the field and how we want to make our impact. You said networking is probably one of the biggest things that impacted your life. Did you read any books to be kind of more in line, in tune with how to make new friends, how to make new uh, colleagues? What was your key to really building the network? And you know, do you have any advice for us on how we can do better, like starting to? Yeah. I, first thing is the reason I think really was my father was a salesman. He sold printing. My father never went to college. My mother never graduated with a college degree. So I grew up... While the belief in education was in paramount perhaps because they didn't have college degrees and they believed that was the ticket to success. But my father as a salesperson, very, my first job was as a messenger in the city at 14, uh, New York City, uh, carrying, carrying things around. They weren't bike messengers back then. You actually took the subway or something. And I'd go into the city with my father and I'd send my father, again, yeah, it's 14, you gave him working papers that had a minimum wage and um, 40 hour work week. I'd say to my dad, like, you know, why do people buy printing from you versus anybody else with printing? You're printing better? And he said, no, the printing's all the same. So why do they buy it from you? It's cheaper? He says, no, everybody charges the same price pretty much. And why do they buy it from you? He said, Glenn, the reason they buy from me is because they like me. They want to spend time with me. And that, to me, was, aha, that's the important thing to know. And I'm kind of like, do you like all these people? He's not like a lot of them, not all of them, like all of them. But, you know, we always treated them well. We always, you know, went on with the right face and everything. And so later on, I was thinking, just looking at it, and you see, like, the Bill Clinton, you know, how important is now? Well, much later in life, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe is the right thing. I saw a book, which I took a look at. It's a pretty good book. And, it's a, and uh, the guy's actually very smart. I can't remember the author, but I remember the name of the book. And he's done a bunch of things since then. He's really, he's a very respected guy. Guys like Fabozzi, maybe. The title of the book is Never Eat Lunch Alone. Okay. And I suggest anybody, it's worth, it's worth half an hour, 45 minutes to read. It's a quick read. And in fact, basically, I just gave away everything you need to know about it, really, basically. Is. Keith Ferrazari. Sorry? Keith Ferrazari, I think. Yeah, is yeah, there you go. Thank you. I couldn't get it exactly right. Yeah, yep, yeah. And so that was probably, I'll, I'll link it in, in this chat as well. Yeah, it would have been good if I had read that when I was like 19 or 20. I would have actually practiced a lot more at, at, at what he's suggesting and promoting. But, but, um, yeah, I, I, I realized from my father how important it was to develop relationships. Wow. Fantastic. So let's get to booking and then we'll wrap up here. I know we got just a few minutes here. Don't want to take up too much of your time. So booking's mission, 
is making it easier for everyone to experience the world. Yeah, what does the future now look like 10 years ahead for travel? You are at a leading front for travel in the entire world. To human species of all the bookings, you're leading billions of, of people getting on flights. You're really, truly leading the world and no one's even close. How do you see the future now? How do you well, read the future? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to look at is, and I'm sure you've traveled somewhat yourself, um, travel sucks. And it's gotten a lot worse, actually, too, by the way. I, I took a trip back from Amsterdam yesterday, and it was a 9.55 departure in the morning, and everybody's telling me, Glenn, you got to be at the airport by 6 four hours in advance to make sure you'll be able to get on that plane to come home. That's crazy. So we get to the airport yesterday morning. I get there. There are literally thousands of people lined up outside the terminal. Not in the terminal, outside the terminal to get into literally thousands of people because the airport, Schiphol, Amsterdam, right now doesn't have enough workers. And it just sucks. Horribly frustrating. But even before that, it was incredibly frustrating. And you always think, why is this so hard? If you do your own flights, which I think most people do, you go on, you're like, so many choices, so many of them that you never wanted. Why is that? Why am I not just seeing the ones that really I would want to take? And then you go further and you go through it and so many things you have to type in. And by the time you are done, by the time you're done, you're exhausted. People always say things like, well, uh, investors will say things. Well, why don't people buy flights? Why don't they buy the hotel right there, most of them? Why don't they? I said, have you tried this yourself yet? Because by the time you are done getting your flight, you do not want to try and now look for the hotel. What you want to do is have a drink and come back, you know, days later to try to recover. It's horrific. There's so many things that need to be improved. If you have a family, have you ever tried to put you know, the seats together before you bought the ticket or just see where are which flights will allow you to have four people across? No, you can't do that. You gotta go through the whole thing before you get that. Or things like a hotel, for example. You walk into the hotel and so many, there are a couple hotels finally are getting there, but most you get there, you have to wait in line to check in. What's that about? You're waiting to check in. Then you finally get up to the desk and the very pleasant, nice person there starts typing. And they keep typing. And they type for, you have no idea what they're typing, by the way. And you're thinking, I put all that information in when I booked the hotel. Why are they typing it all back in again or something? And then they give you a piece of plastic. This thing is known as a key card. It's a key to get into the room. And you're thinking, Gee, so many places and you know, homes, you use your phone and it opens the door. Why are you giving me a piece of plastic? That's destructive of the environment too, by the way. This is ridiculous, isn't it? And I can go on and on and on about so many things. So we believe on a thing, we, our vision, we call it the connected trip. And basically, in a nutshell, is let's get rid of all this friction. Let's get rid of all this incredible aggravation. Let's have a seamless, frictionless way that people can book their travel easily being cho being shown things that they'd want to choose and that they get through it if something were to go wrong we knowing everything about you you just have one contact person you don't have to go to multiple services to try and match it all up god forbid your flight is delayed 
and you did not book your ground transportation the same place, which you probably didn't actually, you're going to now have to deal with both. You got to change the flight and that'll take you forever. Then you got to change the ground transportation thing. And my God, if you're going too late in the hotel and you're afraid they're going to give away your room, you got to talk to them too. Why is it all under one place and all work together? Why do you have to retype everything in for each service that you're going to use? Why am I not given a discount if I choose one uh, full uh, service instead of multiple different ones? You know, back then, I am old enough. I am old enough that while we were not able to travel a lot as a family, we took a couple of trips as a family growing up, um, my parents used a thing called, and, and you may not, Rusha, you may not know this, there's a thing, it was called a travel agent. See, there was this human being, and um, and, and that person, and, and generally, the, the gender, or, you know, many times is a woman, I'm not sure why, but just the way the industry worked, and she would know everything about you. She knew what your family could afford, she knew what you liked because you've done business with her before and she'd learn over the years of what kind of trips you liked and the age of the where the kids and what they may want or not. And she would come up with some of the things that would really fit your budget, what you may want, and you chose them and all that. And she did all the work. You didn't have to do anything except give her one check. A, a check, by the way, she, this is a piece of paper, how you paid people in the past. You may not be familiar with that uh, back then. But anyway, so um, you would get, and, and then, God forbid, anything went wrong, you just called her, and she magically would fix it all. We want to recreate that kind of experience with technology. We want to make it just as easy, as seamless, as wonderful it was back then. And it should be even better because technology, the computer will not forget what the travel agent may have forgotten about you. And the, the database has a much larger selection of things to choose from and can use machine learning to be able to see really what would fit you or not. And that's what the vision is down the road to be able to do that. And it's unfortunate that we're not there yet, but we're building it. And we will get there. It will take time, but we're on that journey. And when we get there, things will be so much better. And I know this because you see so many other things have gotten so much better. You used to, New York City, if it was raining and you wanted to get a taxi, you would be out in the rain with your hand up in the air, or maybe you had a really good whistle and you're, you use your fingers, you're about to whistle, to hope to God that some yellow cab that was of crap condition, where the person had no idea how to drive or where to take you to, would stop and pick you up. And God forbid you're a person of color, because they would never pick up for you ever once. What a horrific system that was. And then there came Uber. And oh my God. You use your phone, you just press one button, and the car appears, and it's a nice, it's not, it's not broken down like a death trap. And the person, maybe the person doesn't know where you're going, but it doesn't matter because technology will take you there in not a circuitous way where they charge you more money. It will take you in the right, most efficient way to get there. And then you just get out of the car. You don't even have to bring out uh, money, which is, again, Rashid, there was this thing that was called money. It was like paper. You may not be, it was paper. You need pieces of paper. That was, but anyway, you got out and you didn't have to do that. It was, my God. Well, Uber to taxis. We should have the connected trip to all of travel and make it easy for everybody to better experience the world. That was probably, that's an amazing answer. Probably one of the best answers I've ever gotten. Love the energy. Last questions and then we'll, we'll hop off here. I know we're at, we're at time. If you could get on the next flight to anywhere, where would it be and why? 
Well, I know where the next flight is, actually, because I'm going back to Amsterdam. Headquarters for Booking.com is in Amsterdam. I'll be getting back on a flight real soon there. But if you're saying for a holiday, vacation, is yep. that what you want? Yep, holiday, vacation. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I have seen, a, I've been very lucky to see a lot of the world and such. But if, if you know, my wife and I were to say, we would probably like to go to some place or we can be near water and just sit down and relax. Read a book, do a little bit of water skiing. Um, maybe there's some gentle ways my wife can do some surfing. But just, you know, pause a little bit. Because the last two and a half years, this pandemic has been a really, really hard time. And then after, you know, we started getting, finally, finally getting out of the pandemic, finally, and then there's this horrific war. And having to deal with our employees in Ukraine and get them out, the ones who were allowed to leave because, you know, men of a certain age are not allowed to leave, so they had to stay. But getting our women and their dependents of everybody out in a safer place and having to deal with the situation. We're a big player in Russia and have to deal with all that issue and all that. And at the same time, very quickly, coming up with people in our, our company, so fantastic, people say, we need to do something. There are millions of refugees leaving Ukraine. We have platform. What can we do? And we came up very quickly with the incredible generosity of our hotel partners and our home partners to come on and give us free or greatly discounted accommodations that we could offer up through this jury-rigged type system we put together to enable refugees coming to Ukraine to have a place to stay that was free or if the hotel or home couldn't really afford free, incredibly, like more than 50% discounted to stay there, to have a place to, and believe me, if you are a mother with small children and you're coming from Ukraine, you have nothing. The idea that at least you have a place, a, a bathroom that you can use with your kids and all that is so wonderful. What our our, our, our people putting that together and the generosity to get that and now we've gone another step with a new system even more co more complex where we got some of the biggest chains in the world. Hilton has joined us hundreds of properties who part of this and working with the UNHCR the High Commissioner for Refugees that's the UN's refugee agency and other NGOs to make sure that we are orienting this to the people who need the help the most and doing that it's just been one of the things I am most proud of our organization ever to do something like that Well, we really are helping people. So you ask me, if I'm able to take, we've been doing a lot of tremendous amount of work over the last two and a half years, I wouldn't mind a couple of days, just sit down, relax a little bit and read a book. That is truly incredibly inspiring. We're, you know, we're incredibly thankful to you and booking, um, booking holdings as a group to really take on humanity and help out when people really truly need it so yeah again it's been a thing. fantastic episode glenn i'm truly truly honored it's this is one of the most energetic episodes i've done i'm people are going to be absolutely delighted once again incredibly thankful to you and your team for helping set up this opportunity well thank you and again i can't thank our partners enough you know we have over thirty-five thousand refugees have been placed in either a hotel or a home on our platform. And it's continued to grow. And I'm just so thankful that we're able to help others. Wow. Super excited to share this episode with everyone. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Let me know what you thought. Your feedback really means a lot to me. I'll have Mamba finish this one out. Have a good time. Enjoy life. It's, um... Life is too short to, to, to get bogged down and be discouraged or 
Um, you have to keep moving. You have to keep going. Put one foot in front of the other, smile, and just keep on rolling.